Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Bibles or devices, let's go to Exodus. We're gonna start at the end of Exodus 6. Exodus 6, verse 28. We're gonna start there and go into Exodus 7. Thank you, Brandon. We continue our series through the book of Exodus. We're at week 11, uh, so we're getting there. Uh, but we're gonna do chapter, the first part of chapter 7 today. The next two weeks, we're gonna cover all of the plagues, so we'll be moving at a more uh, aggressive rate at that point. Uh, but next week for us is a family Sunday. And so uh, kids, uh, first grade through fifth grade will be here in the services with us. So just, I want you to remember that. And I want you to still come and bring your kids with you. Uh, we'll have worship bags for them. They, they can sit here and learn and listen just as well, if not better than most of you can. And so we, we love having them here. They get to experience this. They get to watch their mama and daddy worship. They get to see that uh, in action. And so we love these moments. So next Sunday is a family Sunday for us. Also coming up, Good Friday, we are doing a Good Friday prayer and worship night, but we're gonna do it as a Passover meal. So we're gonna dig back into old ancient tradition and we're gonna celebrate the Passover because Lord willing, that's where we'll be in our study of Exodus at that point. And we're gonna see the connection of the Passover to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus thousands of years later on Easter Sunday. So I can't, I can't encourage you enough to come be part of that. Seven o'clock, Good Friday, uh, April 15th. Uh, so I want to invite you to that. All right. All right. So we're going to continue in Exodus. Again, we're in chapter seven. So a number of things have happened. Uh, Moses has been called by God to set God's people free from slavery in Egypt. They've been there 430 years in intense slavery the last uh, number of years. And God calls Moses back to Egypt. He lived there for a while, ran to the wilderness. God calls him back. Moses says, I can't, I'm not good enough. And God says, I know, but I am, I am, I am, I am. I'll go with you. Moses says, yeah, that's great, but could I also have my brother? And so Aaron, his brother, goes with him as well. And then uh, we get back into Egypt. Uh, Moses and Aaron try to convince the people of God that God has sent them to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And they're like, yeah, sure he has. So then Moses throws a staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. Like, oh, okay, well, maybe he has sent you then. Okay, then we will follow you. He tries to tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, I don't know this God you're talking about. I don't even know who you are. So I will not let my people go. So that's pretty much where we catch up. Last week, we looked at this genealogy in Genesis chapter six. As if Moses was reminding himself, okay, God has worked in my entire life to get me to this moment here right now. And he steps into this new kind of season of ministry, and you're gonna see it for him. It doesn't get easier for him, but it seems like his confidence, his uh, fortitude has grown immensely in this early journey with the Lord. And it begins here in uh, the end of chapter six and beginning of chapter seven. Now, this is important. This is an important hinge for us. All this happens before what we know of as the 10 plagues. And that's the part you're excited to get to, the 10 plagues and the Red Sea, looking forward to that. But this has to happen first, and I'm gonna show you why here in a bit. We're gonna read a portion of scripture. It's gonna, it's gonna confuse a lot of us in the way that God works in and through evil people. 
But if we read it out of context, we lose the significance of it. So we need to study all of this in context. Let's go to Exodus chapter six, verse 28. I'm gonna read through 713, and then we're gonna study together. Exodus chapter six, verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I, have, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So he's saying, I, I can't do this. I'm not qualified. I don't have the ability. Then read chapter seven, verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, see, or behold, look, I have made you like God. That's the Hebrew word Elohim, which is like a generic term for God. I've made you like a God to Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But, verse three, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, which is encouraging. Then he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Underline that word serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. There's that word again. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, circle sorcerers, and they, the magicians, circle that of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Underline, circle that phrase. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. And there's that word. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So there's two kind of main ways to approach communicating scripture to an audience, right? There's teaching and there's preaching. Uh, preaching, many of us grew up with in the South, right? He hits the pulpit, yells at you a lot, wipes his sweat off with a handkerchief. That's preaching, that's what that is. That's preaching. Teaching then is just, it's really unpacking the word of God. Here's what it says. And some of us get bored to death when someone just kind of monotone, just tells this is what the Bible says. And so you get overwhelmed with some of that. Well, truthfully, this morning, here's what I feel led to do. Is I wanna teach it first, and I feel like I'm gonna have to preach a little bit this morning. I feel like where God, I'll bring it. The way that God has, the way the Lord has wired, put this thing together in my heart, it's gonna require some things. And so I'm uh, just gonna ask you, buckle up. Let's, let's study this together. I think the Lord has some great things to say to us here this morning through his word. So let's teach through it, and then let's preach. Uh, Exodus 6, 28. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, so they've been in Egypt, and the Lord tells Moses that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, remember, I am that I am, that's from Exodus three. So go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I say to you. 
And Moses gives this excuse again, and then how will Pharaoh listen to me? So again, let's put it all in context. This is all bookended by this phrase in chapter six, and then this is genealogy where God reminds Moses who he is. He reminds Moses, I've knit you together in your mother's womb. I've determined the boundaries of your dwelling place. I've brought you to this moment. And immediately following this, and we begin in verse 14 of chapter seven, we hit the plagues where God enacts acts of, of judgment upon the people of Egypt to deliver his people. But here is this hinge that's significant. There is a battle here ensuing between good and evil and on the surface between God and Pharaoh. But even more significant than that is the fact that Pharaoh himself believes himself to be a deity, to be a God. He's been told from birth that he is a God. And all the gods, the sun god and the moon god and the goddess of fertility, all of them have uh, given all of their powers to this uh, man, Pharaoh. If you watch Power Rangers, you understand what's happened here when they all gather together because it's morphin' time and that, that happens. So all of that is that, or if you watch, maybe you're a Voltron guy, it's the same thing, whatever, it's happened. And Pharaoh believes that's him. Now, in Egypt, there are literal false gods. And I don't, we're gonna talk more about this in the next couple weeks. I don't, I don't want us to church it up. It's divine beings who are acting counter to the work of God. And if you think that's crazy, I need to remind you, you believe a man raised from the dead. I want you to remind you that. We believe in, in divine good. Why wouldn't you also believe in this also divine cosmic evil? So what's happening here is Pharaoh himself believes himself to be a God working on behalf of the evil one, okay? In fact, Pharaoh himself would wear a crown and on this crown would be a snake, a serpent. Serpent to the Egyptians was a source of power and might. In Genesis uh, chapter three, when we're introduced to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who was the personification of the devil, Satan, we are told that he is more cunning or shrewd than any beast the Lord God had made. And that word, shrewd, cunning, doesn't show up again until Exodus chapter one, when Pharaoh, the Pharaoh tells his people, we have to deal shrewdly with the Israelites. What Moses is telling us here in the Exodus is this Pharaoh, is the new serpent. He's the new enemy of God. He's the one who has snuck into the garden. What's happening here is a cosmic battle between good and evil, between the one true God, Yahweh, and the Elohims, the evil uh, cosmic gods of Egypt. All that is happening here. So then let's continue into chapter seven, verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, see or look, look here is what he's saying. Pay attention. I have made you like God. I've, I've made you godlike to Pharaoh. If you remember back in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit, it's because they wanted to be like God. And now God says, I'm going to make you like a God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. So now we get kind of our first glimpse of how God will work throughout the rest of the Old Testament is that he will speak to men, women called prophets or prophetesses and the prophets will speak and act on behalf of God. 
And because Moses didn't want to speak to anyone, God said, fine, then I will give you Aaron who will be your mouthpiece. And he says, you will go and you will speak to Pharaoh. Verse two, you shall speak to him all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then verse three, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, he won't listen, he says in verse four. So here's where we get tripped up. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will, I will make him unable to actually be obedient to what I'm asking him to do. And if that doesn't mess with you, you're not reading it right. That should completely mess with you. That God, abounding in love, slow to anger, would say, I'm going to make it so that Pharaoh cannot obey what I'm asking him to do. I will harden his heart. I will stiffen his neck. I will make him more stubborn. So I need us, we need to read this in context of what's happening. God is about to engage in a war to proclaim to the world through his people, and he says he's gonna let even Egypt know through these very acts that he is the one true God. It's him. And how he's going to do that is he's gonna prove that he is sovereign in control over everything. And he says, I will harden Pharaoh's hearts. Now, what's great about the Bible is that the Bible interprets itself. We don't have to wonder what that means. We can just keep reading. And then we know what it means. So let's keep reading this. Keep this in, in mind. That God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm gonna let them know that I am Yahweh, the one true God. I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse four, and Pharaoh will not listen to you. And I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Notice what he's saying. Moses isn't delivering anyone. Aaron isn't delivering anyone. Pharaoh isn't delivering anyone. God is doing it. I will do it. I will deliver them. My people, I will deliver them. Verse five, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, how will they know that he is Yahweh? By his mighty acts of judgment and power. That's how they'll know. Verse six, Moses and Aaron did so, which if you're paying attention, is already a miracle. Right, Moses didn't argue. He didn't try to figure out another way around it, didn't wanna invite more friends into the party. They just did what God asked them to do, which is the miracle already. Verse seven, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh, which sounds old until you realize they lived to be 120 and 123. So yeah, old, but not as old as we think this is, but they're advanced in age. Verse eight, when the Lord, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, because God knows Pharaoh's going to, when he says this, when he says, prove yourselves by working a miracle or a sign or a wonder, because that's how Pharaoh has gotten to know every other person who uh, acts on behalf of their God, because they perform miracles. That's how he knows. So he says, fine, if you're here on behalf of this Yahweh that you're talking about, do something. Show me a trick. Be funny. Do something. You shall say to Aaron... 
take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now, if you're reading along, this should begin to sound familiar. Does this sound familiar? It's like we've seen this before, but I, we have to be careful to see the nuance and the differences here of what's happening. Let's read that verse again. Take your staff, tell Aaron, take your staff. Whose staff? Aaron's staff. And cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So back in Exodus chapter four, God is trying to get Moses to finally just obey. And so God says, here, do a few things for me so I can prove to you who I am. Exodus four, verse two, the Lord says to Moses, well, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a staff. Whose staff? Moses' staff. And he says, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it, like you do. So notice this though, notice in Exodus four, it's just God and Moses. And God's trying to compel Moses to be obedient. I've given you everything that you need. What's that, that staff in your hand? Throw it down and make it become a serpent. Now, this is gonna be significant here. Then verse four, and the Lord said to Moses, now put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Which if you've ever caught a snake, that's not how you should catch a snake. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. So Exodus four, it's just God and Moses. Moses throws down his staff. Exodus seven, Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh, and we'll learn later, also some servants and sorcerers and magicians with them. So there's an audience. And this is not Moses' staff, this is Aaron's staff. Now, let's, let's look at the Hebrew language, which I don't wanna do this a lot because it makes us think we can't trust the English translation. You can, there's layers to this. And here's, here's a layer of what's happening. Exodus 4, the word used for serpent is the Hebrew word nachash. Say nachash. Yeah. So that, it means just your, just your, just a snake. Like your garden snake, a variety, just any kind of black racer, it's a snake. This is what it is, it's a snake. That's this word. So Exodus 4, this is what happens. When Moses throws his staff down, it just becomes a snake. Just a regular old snake that happens here. This is the same word in Genesis chapter three, verse one, when he speaks of the enemy, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. It's nothing special about this snake, if there was a thing of special snakes, but this one, is there's nothing unique about it. Just a normal snake is what's going on here in Exodus four. But Exodus seven, Aaron throws his staff down And this Hebrew word for serpent is the Hebrew word tanin. Say tanin. This word means sea monster or dragon. Uh Uh-huh, dragon. Another phrase the Hebrews would have used would have called this a chaos monster. As you keep reading scripture, uh, particularly in Job, you hear about a creature named Leviathan, who is called a tanin. Some translations in Genesis 1.21 says that God created the great sea creatures, that's the Hebrew word tanin. Now, we don't know if this is some kind of species, we don't know. I mean, what, what we do understand from reading through this is that it's some kind of reptile creature that can live on the water and the land, so amphibious reptile, we're not really sure. 
the modern Hebrew translation of this word tenin is crocodile. So I don't know what you pictured when you just read that Aaron threw his staff on the ground and became a serpent. But I guarantee you didn't picture a dragon. I, don't, I guarantee you didn't. And I need to remind you of the power of what's happening. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a Disney movie. This isn't, this isn't Lord of the Rings. This, this isn't Jurassic Park. Like this, this happened. Aaron throws his staff down and it's not a garden snake. This is a menacing creature that the Hebrews would have called a chaos monster. This is what's happening in the courts of Pharaoh. This is what's happening. Aaron throws his staff down. And you, I, you just gotta think. Moses is like, well, that's not what happened last time. Like, I'm pretty sure we did the same thing. And that's not what mine turned into. And Moses ran from the snake. What do you think he's doing right now? Like, what do you think? He's running away. He's, Aaron, what have you done? This happens and chaos ensues. Do you remember back in Exodus 4, God has Moses do a few things. And the serpent, Moses runs, and then he grabs it and it turns into a staff again. Puts his hand in his cloak and it turns leprous. He puts his hand in there again. It's as, it's as if God is creating chaos and then using that chaos to redeem some other, other sort of chaos. He's using the chaos that he created with, with Moses to redeem the chaos that Moses already has in his heart. This is what God is doing. In this moment, God, this creature comes out of this staff. Now, there's some people that would say, these next group of men who performed the same act, that there was some weird way that they could hypnotize a snake and basically hit a snake on its neck, a cobra, and it would paralyze it in such a way that these magicians and sorcerers could just use this actual snake as a staff. Maybe, but the problem is they don't become cobras. They become sea monsters. They become dragons. They become chaos monsters. So this is significant of what's happening here. God takes what he gave Moses, and when he's before Pharaoh, he raises the stakes a bit. Now keep reading in verse 10. Well, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord God commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a tanin. It became this chaos monster. So then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. And again, I don't want to 21st century this up. When you think of a magician, you think of somebody with a sleight of hand, right? He's not really cutting that woman in half. We all know that, right? We all know that person didn't just disappear. We know it's, it's sleight of hand, it's trickery, it's, it's diverting attention, it's mirrors, it's smoke, it's the whole thing. When you read this, do not think David Copperfield. Think a witch. This is witchcraft is what this is. So bad that in Deuteronomy, God says, don't you dare dabble in this stuff. It's evil. And it's from the domain of darkness. Don't mess with it. What's happening here is not some guy pulling a rabbit out of a hat. This is demonic activity. So he calls these men, at the end of verse 11, they did the same. So let that sink in. 
these sorcerers can do the same thing that God just did. It looks exactly the same. They throw their staffs down just like Aaron did and their staffs turn into tanin just like Aaron's staff did. This is not sleight of hand. There's no smoke and mirrors. This is actually happening in Pharaoh's court. Keep reading, verse 12. For each man cast down his staff and they became tanin, serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Do you see it? It doesn't matter what the enemy does. God's gonna win. It doesn't matter that they, it looks on the surface as if they've done the same thing that God has done. God is going to win. And so God has used the chaos of Egypt. He's used the sorcery and witchcraft of the sorcerers. And he's taken this staff of Aaron. And again, he's proved himself to be Yahweh, the God who is what he is. The one true God. And in this moment, you have to think for Moses and Aaron, they were like, oh, okay. Okay, Pharaoh. And at this point, you have to think, they're like, whatever he throws at us, God's gonna handle it. But verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So, that's the teaching, right? That happens. So what, what do we do with, like, what do you do with that? What do you do with dragons in the Bible? What do you do with all of that? Well, I want us to think about our own lives, and even today, uh, March 27th, 2022. Is there chaos in your life? Does it feel like there are things happening that are out of your control and out of God's control in your life? Have you paid attention to the world at all? What happens for us is that we begin to depend on the works of man to overpower whatever chaos there is in the world. And we begin to think, well, if I just get the right guy, the right person, the right politician, the right athlete, the right wife, the right husband, the right teachers, the right job, if I can just assemble the right group of people. And sometimes the things that happen through those people actually mimic what God is wanting to do in the world. But you have to remember something. Aaron's staff swallowed up the staffs of the sorcerers and magicians. And when we pay attention to the world and it feels like everything's spiraling out of control and, and uh, whatever you're watching on the news and whatever you're feeling about um, sexual preference and gender identity and the public school system and all of those things, what happens for us is we're in Pharaoh's court. And it feels like everything's spinning out of control. Well, let me give you another connection here in the New Testament. Paul writes to a young man named Timothy who's about to step into his first ministry position as a pastor of a church. In 2 Timothy chapter three, Paul tells Timothy, understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to your parents. I'm gonna read that again. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness. Do you see it? 
but denying its power, avoid such people. Now this is written by Paul to Timothy back in the early first century AD. We could lay that over 2022 and it would say the exact same thing. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Google anyone? Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, you know who they are? They're two of the sorcerers from Exodus chapter seven. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So here's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, be careful. There's a bunch of false teachers in the world. There's a bunch of crazy theology and crazy sociology going on, and you need to be careful. In fact, hey, Timothy, do you remember the story of Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh? Do you remember the sorcerers? Well, those false teachers, that false sociology is just like their sorcery. It's just like them who oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But then this next verse takes us back to an Aaron's staff swallowed up the staffs of the sorcerers. Look at verse nine. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. If you can, like I can, find yourself in 2 Timothy chapter three, verses one through five, I would just encourage us to keep reading because you can Facebook and tweet and Instagram and TikTok and meme all you want about how you're right. But verse nine is all you need. They will not get very far and their folly will be plain to all. Paul compares these false teachers in 2 Timothy 3 to the demonic sorcerers of Exodus 7 that they manipulate demonic power for their own gain. But again, verse nine, the power of God always defeats the power of darkness, always. So I love you enough to say, what are you so afraid of? So liberal media, so liberal politicians, so this party and that party and that person and that politician and these people and that school system and this is teaching. What are you afraid of? Verse nine, their folly will be plain to all. They will not get very far. And while the power of evil can mimic the power of God for a moment, the power of God will always swallow up the power of evil. Christian, you've got nothing to be afraid of, nothing. You don't have to fear anything for your kids and for future generations. Have babies, make families, we're gonna be okay. Their folly will be revealed. They won't get very far. But what happens for us is that we don't handle these issues very well because I'm not sure we believe in Yahweh as much as we believe in the gods of right-wing politics or liberal politics or social media. I think 
we've lost faith in the God who created the sea monster, that that sea monster might overtake the demonic sea monsters. I think we've lost faith in the power of Yahweh. Author Beth Moore, regardless of how you feel about her, says this, we've traded the power of the Holy Spirit for the power of anger. And the pitiful tragedy is that we can't tell the difference. Does the demonic power of the world anger us? Absolutely. Does it frustrate us? Absolutely. But we've got something more powerful than that. We've got the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. We've got the same power of God who stood before Pharaoh and said, I'll take all of your chaos and I'll swallow it all up. This is the God that we serve. And there's far too many of us who are depending on the power of anger to get something done as opposed to the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you prayed for him? Have you prayed for her? Have you prayed for your son and your daughter and their teacher? Have you prayed for the person with a different political ideology than yours? Have you prayed for the person who has a different social agenda than you do? We've exchanged the power of anger for the power of the Holy Spirit, and may it not be so among us. This is what's happening here for Moses. God is reminding Moses, whatever is thrown at you, I've got it. Whatever Pharaoh throws at you, whatever the wilderness throws at you, whatever the Israelites throw at you, I can handle it. Romans chapter eight, verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Your kids are gonna be fine. Family's gonna make it. Our church has been around for almost 200 years. We're gonna make it. Because the power of God is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I want you to fan the flame of the gift of God. I want you to stoke that fire. Verse seven, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So what is Paul telling Timothy? you got a choice of which flames you're gonna stoke. And you can either stoke the flame of the power of God or you can stoke the flame of your fear. It's up to you. And there are enough people in our lives stoking the flame of fear, aren't there? There's enough people pouring gasoline on the fire of fear for us. I think we need to start stoking the flame of the faith of God. That's what we need to start doing. So let me just speak to you students for a second. Students, you've gotta do it. The world is out to get you. You're vulnerable. I know you think you're not, but you're easily deceived, you're easily tricked. Social media has made it worse. Technology has made it worse. You must fan in the flames the gift of faith that God has given you. You must, or you're not gonna make it. And you can't stoke fear. You can't stoke political ideology. You've got to stoke the fan of flame, a flame of faith. Parents, for your kids' sake, quit making them fearful. 
Quit making them afraid of everyone who thinks differently than they do, who votes differently than you do. Quit making them afraid of other races. Quit. Quit stoking the flames of fear. They hear you talking. They hear the conversations you have about that politician and that teacher and that administration and that school system. They hear all of it. And their moldable, impressionable minds, their flame of faith is not being stoked. Their flame of fear is. And you know what fear turns into? Anger. And angry people are a terrible representation of the gospel of Jesus. We, parents, we've got to do better. Your kid might know how to vote, but he can't find 2 Timothy in the Bible, and that's a problem. We need to start stoking the flames of faith for our kids. We need to do it for us. You travel for work, and so you're in your car, your truck all day long, and so you've, you've got whatever podcast or uh, political radio you've got on. You are stoking the flame of fear. There are better things to be putting into your heart and soul than that, that stoke the flame of faith. There's podcasts and sermons and pastors and videos and books, things that would stoke the fan of your flame of faith. Come to church. Soak up God's word. Be with people who are trying to worship Yahweh, the one true God. Get in a small group. On Wednesday nights, we're taking a look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're trying to stoke the flame of faith. Listen, you've got time for everything else in your life. And I'm not concerned about how many people we have there. I'm just, I'm concerned for your soul. We need to stoke the flame of faith of the gift of God. Grandparents, gosh, I love you, but you're some of the worst. <laughs> Remind your kids and their kids how good God has been to you. Take a look at your life and see where God has brought you from places. You've got life on us. Tell us about it. Tell us about the goodness of God. Get involved in student ministry or tell our, our elementary school kids how good God is. Not just because you read it, because you've lived it for 60, 70, 80 years. I wanna know, we wanna know. Stoke the fan or the flame of your faith. Turn off the talk radio, turn off the 24 hour news. God's got it. He can handle the chaos monsters of the world. And parents, let me just say this to you while I'm making enemies. <laughs> Please don't discipline your kids away from student ministry. Like, I know you ground them and they can't go do anything fun. Student ministry is not fun. It's boring. <laughs> no one likes it. But of all the places your son or daughter needs to be around godly men and women to hear the good news of Jesus, please just think again about that. We can stand on our high horses and talk all day long about generations and how that generation is such an issue. You know what causes problems in the younger generation? The older generation. 
You wanna know why they're so entitled? Because we gave them trophies. They didn't do it, we did. So we've got a real chance to stoke the the flame of faith for our kids and for our own hearts and souls, and I can't beg you enough. Because in the end, who can stand against us if God is for us? I don't wanna waste 40 years in fear. I wanna live in the victory of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And this Pharaoh, this serpent, would eventually, apparently, take out the hero, the Son of God, the Messiah. And the chaos would ensue on a Friday night through Saturday, but then, oh, come that Sunday morning, the chaos monster of God has swallowed up the staff of the sorcerers. We win, let's live like it. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for ridiculously crazy things that happen. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the fact that it could be true. We don't discount it or try to explain it away, but what we see over and over again in scripture is that you win. You win. And there's coming a day where you will prove yourself victorious yet again. God, I don't want our people, I don't want our church to spend the rest of their lives in fear when you've already given us freedom in the victory. So God, whatever has ruffled our feathers and made us more uh, dependent upon anger than the power of the Holy Spirit, God, would you convict us in those places? Would you challenge the very things that we think we believe if we're not living like it? And God, I do pray for our kids. I pray for them. Just protect them. Guard their hearts and their minds. God, protect the innocence of sweet babies. Knowing in the end that we have nothing to fear. You haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and a sound mind. So give us a sound mind today, Father. Give us eyes to see that we are walking in victory today. May our church be a place of that, uh, people walking in victory, celebrating your goodness. And I don't know where you all find yourselves this morning, but I know enough to know that many of us struggle with not trusting that God is victorious. So we've become angry and resentful and bitter. We've become discipled by talk radio more than discipled by the gospel of Jesus. And we've made an idol out of those things. And maybe today you just feel that constant agitation, that constant hum of just everything sets you off. And maybe you're tired of it. I pray you are, because it's better than that. So if that's you today, you can just, you can take steps towards laying all that down. That you need to remember the power of God who swallows up the work of the enemy. That they won't make it very far. Their folly will be shown. And maybe you're here today and you've been chasing the folly of the world. But what you've learned is that it's not doing what you were told it would do. 
And it looked good on the surface, but over time, it just proved itself to be something that it wasn't. So maybe today what you need to do is give your faith to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that you would admit you're a sinner who needs a Savior. You'd believe that he is that Savior. And you would confess with your lips and with your life that he is Lord, the one true God. We would tear down the high places of idolatry in our hearts and begin to walk in faith. God, would you make us a people, a people who walk in freedom and that we would fan into flame the gift of faith you've given us. So help us to cut out what we need to cut out, to add what we need to add, to create space in our schedule. Would you give us good, healthy conversations with our kids and our grandparents and parents? that we might be a people who are reminded that you win. In Jesus' name, amen.